Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Machion Diagnostics. In this podcast series, we will be discussing thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Machion Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. With that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Lewis. Brad, take it away. Hi, this is Brad Lewis with Blood, Sweat, and Smears, the podcast from Machion Diagnostics Incorporated. Today, I wanted to talk just for a little while about mixing studies. The reason for having this conversation is we've had quite a few calls in the last little while where people were confused because some mixing studies were coming back negative and some positive, or the mixing study was coming back without a clear-cut diagnosis attached to it. I just wanted to talk a little bit about what a mixing study is, what it isn't, and while I'm at it, I'll talk about a few interesting little quirks that we see sometimes in some of the mixing studies. So what is a mixing study? A couple things to say about it. One is it's in some ways much simpler than most people want to give it credit for. A mixing study is simply a 50-50 mix of normal plasma and the patient's plasma that's then run through whatever test you're interested in. So you could get a PTT mixing study, you're going to run a PTT with 50-50 mix of the patients in normal plasma, a pro-time mixing study, you can get a Russell's Viper Venom mixing study, you can do a mixing study with almost any test, and I'll talk about a few more in just a moment. But the point is, it's just a mix. For most tests, for almost all tests, not quite all, when you have a 50-50 mix of normal plasma with patient plasma, that 50% level of any or all factor levels is enough to make that test normal. Certainly that's true for the PT and the PTT, not true for the ADAMTS-13 assay, but true most of the time. And it's that correction that we see with normal plasma that is what the mixing study is all about. The other point to make about the mixing study is that it's a screen. It rarely gives you a clean diagnosis of whether there is or isn't an inhibitor, except in a couple of situations I'll mention. Most of the time it's a screen and then you'll need to move on and do a more specific test. So if, for example, you have someone with a long PTT and you do a mixing study, you then know that you have an inhibitor that something is inhibiting, and I'll talk about how it's interpreted, but something is inhibiting the PTT. You don't know what that is. It could be a factor eight inhibitor. It could be a lupus anticoagulant. It could be any of quite a few things in the PTT pathway. A little more straightforward if you have a Russell's Viper Venom inhibitor, where it's only the, the common pathway that you're going to be concerned about. Even more specific if you have a thrombin time inhibitor, in which case you have something that's affecting fibrinogen. So again, it does allow you to differentiate deficiencies and inhibitors, but it does not give you a specific diagnosis. When might you use it? I've kind of alluded to that already. You would use it anytime you think an inhibitor to something might have developed. Like most commonly, we do it for the PTTs. Someone has a long PTT, and the question is, is this a deficiency? often a congenital deficiency, but also a deficiency because of medications like Coumadin or because of liver disease or other dysfunctions. But is it a deficiency or has someone acquired antibodies or an inhibitor against one of these factors? Similarly, for the pro-time, same phenomenon, factors 2, 7, 9, and 10 can all cause prolongation of the pro-time, and this test allows us to differentiate deficiency from inhibitor. ADAMTS-13 levels are done when you're suspecting TTP as a cause of a TMA, a thrombotic microangiopathy. 
If the ADAMTS-13 levels are very low, that confirms the diagnosis of TTP. And the question that then comes up is, is this congenital or is it acquired? And you can do a mixing study as a way of looking to see if there are antibodies that are inhibiting the function of the ADAMTS-13. Just to mention in passing, as I said I would, there is one little wrinkle here because not all antibodies against ADMTS13 inhibit the function of ADMTS13. Some of them increase the rate of clearance of the ADMTS13. That's important because that mixing study will come back normal. It'll look like there's a deficiency in those patients if the antibodies are causing increased clearance. To look for that possibility, we do a second test, an ELISA test, looking for the presence of antibodies against the ADMTS13. One or the other or both of those tests can be positive in patients with inhibitors. So you will occasionally get what appears initially to be a discrepant result. The lupus anticoagulant is an antibody that affects the reagents that are used to trigger the PTT, also has some other effects. We actually have a podcast on lupus anticoagulants from some time ago. But with one of the first steps in looking at the possibility of a lupus anticoagulant is to do a mixing study on the patient's prolonged PTT. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. And there are some other less common inhibitors that can also cause prolongation of the PTT. More rarely, very rarely in fact, you can see someone with a possible fibrinogen inhibitor who presents with a prolonged thrombin time, and you're going to want to do a mixing study in that case, but you need to be careful because heparin also looks like an inhibitor in that setting. And von Willebrands, rarely, but occasionally we see inhibitors to von Willebrands, and you're going to want to do a von Willebrands functional assay and then do a mixing study with that functional assay. Here, I would just want to talk about one common misconception that just came up this week. Von Willebrands does not prolong the PTT. Actually, there was one of the residents' teaching sites on, online that pointed out that von Willebrands causes a long PTT. It does not. Now, von Willebrands doesn't affect the PTT at all. It really requires a separate test of platelet function because, it, because that's what it, it actually impacts. The confusion comes because factor VIII is cleared very rapidly unless it's wrapped or connected to von Willebrands protein. So in the absence of von Willebrands protein, factor VIII may have a shorter half-life. If the severity of your von Willebrands defect or the nature of your von Willebrands defect, type 2N von Willebrands, for example, is causing increased clearance of factor VIII, then you will have a factor VIII deficiency and factor VIII impacts the PTT, but von Willebrands does not. All right. So we've done our mixing study. How do we interpret it? There are three possibilities, as you might expect. You do the mix and it fully corrects. It normalizes the test, whatever it is. We'll talk about PTTs, but again, could be any of those tests I mentioned, ADAMTS13, ProTime, thrombin time, von Willebrands, whatever. But we do the mixing study on our PTT and it corrects back to a normal PTT. There's a significant amount of slop in this. You'll see that we often do a normal control, and you'll see that the normal control, just by being mixed and handled and allowed to sit for a while, will slightly prolong to some extent. But if it more or less fully corrects, then you have a deficiency. You're simply missing a factor. If you mix normal plasma with the patient's plasma and your result is still abnormal, then obviously that patient's plasma is worse than nothing. It's able to, to inhibit the normal plasma. 
So you've diagnosed an inhibitor when you do not correct the test, the PTT in this test case that we're talking about. One of the issues that comes up here is how much correction is really needed. And this gets to be a bit murky. Um, we'll often say that if you don't have at least a five-second prolongation that you can then correct, it's hard to be sure that you're not just dealing with slop in the system and that you actually have a true inhibitor. And there are a number of formulas that are out there for figuring this out. Most of us do it on a, a percentage basis and just talk about the degree of correction. The third possibility is that you could have a mixed situation. A fairly common uh, setting for us to see that is in someone who has a lupus anticoagulant that inhibits the phospholipid that's used to trigger the PTT, causes a prolonged PTT, and we get what looks like an inhibitor picture with that. But that same collection of antibodies often includes some antiprothrombin antibodies that may increase the clearance of prothrombin, not inhibit its function. That will appear as a deficiency of prothrombin or factor two. So that patient has both an inhibitor and a deficiency. So you'll get correction of the PTT, but not complete correction. Correction because of the, of the presence of a deficiency, but a failure to completely correct because you also have an inhibitor at the same time. We sometimes see the same thing in liver disease because although you can get deficiencies of the liver-produced factors, 2, 7, 9, and 10, with severe liver dysfunction, occasionally you'll also get significant dysfibrinogenemia, and those dysfibrinogens may disrupt the clot formation and actually cause what appears to be an, in, an inhibitor. This week, actually, we had a patient with hemophilia who developed a lupus anticoagulant who has both a def deficiency of factor VIII that's congenital, but has now developed an inhibitor not against this factor VIII, but actually a lupus anticoagulant type inhibitor, which can be fairly confusing. That's really the, the extent of the real meat of what I wanted to talk about. I did want to talk about just a few little issues since we're on the subject of inhibitors. Lupus anticoagulants. Note that these guys are really squirrely. There are a lot of variable effects. You will occasionally see someone who has abnormal PTT, and that's why you send the sample. And then when we repeat it, they have a, a normal PTT. There's a certain amount of reagent specificity. We do, for lupus anticoagulants, use a highly lupus anticoagulant sensitive PTT to screen for this, but occasionally it won't show. You, know, you will occasionally see that the lupus anticoagulant prolongs the Russell's Viper venom, but doesn't prolong the PTT. We could do a mixing study in that setting. Most of the time we'll just do what's called a phospholipid conformation. We add phospholipid back to the mix. Now the phospholipid absorbs out the lupus anticoagulant, correcting the RVV. Really, nothing would correct the, the test, whether it's RVV or PTT, with phospholipid except a lupus anticoagulant. So we've made that diagnosis. Um, also, we often know because the lupus anticoagulant tends to immediately affect the PTT or whatever test, where other inhibitors like factor VIII, for example, tend to be um, more delayed and may take an hour or two hours before you see full impact on the, on the PTT or whatever. Another question that comes up often with uh, the lupus anticoagulant is that when we're going to do that mixing study, the inhibitor screen, what about patients who are on anticoagulants? Punchline is it's easier to do a lupus anticoagulant screen in toto in a patient who's not on anticoagulation if that's possible. It's often not possible since it's often being done as a test to screen someone who's had recurrent clots 
when they stopped anticoagulation, not someone you want to unanticoagulate. In that setting, note that heparin looks like a PTT inhibitor, as well as a thrombin time inhibitor if we were going to be doing that when we do our mixing study. But we can differentiate that. We first of all know that we have heparin contamination of the sample because we do a thrombin time, which is very heparin sensitive. And we can then to some extent deal with that problem by using heparin inhibitors in our mix. And also when we do the phospholipid conformation, the phospholipid will not correct a heparin or heparin-like inhibition, but it will inhibit the lupus anticoagulant. Coumadin presents with a deficiency and it really should correct fully. It should not confuse us as, a, as an inhibitor. The NOACs can be a bit squirrely and do sometimes muck up our testing, looking a little bit like as though they could be an inhibitor. But again, we confirm the test with phospholipid and that test should allow us to get some degree of differentiation, even in the setting of the NOACs. A couple other things to mention in passing about these uh, weird lupus anticoagulants. If you have a poorly filled tube, it can give you a false positive. You want to be careful, as you always do, to, to make sure the tubes are filled completely so there's the appropriate ratio of anticoagulant to plasma ultimately. A not rare problem is that when the sample is spun down at the home lab, if you will, the spin is not vigorous enough to fully spin down all the platelets, leaving some platelets in the plasma. That's a problem, right? We talked earlier about there being a phospholipid neutralization of the lupus anticoagulant. If you leave platelets in the plasma and then with handling those platelets lice, they release exactly the phospholipid that we need to neutralize the lupus anticoagulant. So it can make and lupus anticoagulant disappear, which is something we've seen. Someone has a very strong PTT-type lupus anticoagulant in the hospital. They send us a sample for further testing, and we don't see it because the sample wasn't spun down adequately, and the, there's platelet neutralization. Note that weak lupus anticoagulants will sometimes correct and look as though they're deficiencies. That's just a confusion, but it is typically only with very low-level lupus anticoagulants. And just as a pearl to stick in your back pocket, it's actually not of a lot of clinical value, but rarely you'll see that we do the mixing study and the PTT prolongs with the mixing study. That's very likely to be a, a lupus anticoagulant. What you're seeing is the prozone effect. Lupus anticoagulants have to cross-link these molecules to, to have a positive test. And when you have too high a titer of the lupus anticoagulant, it can actually inhibit the test and not show the inhibition. You need then to dilute it out. And when you dilute it out with the mix, that then makes the PTT prolong even more effectively or may even bring in new prolongation. So punchline, you want to get a mixing study when you have an abnormal coag test and you want to know what it is, now, whether it's PT, PTT, or ADAMTS13 or others. And when you do that mixing study, most of the time what that tells you is there's an inhibitor, but you'll then need to do a specific factor assay to find out which factor is being inhibited. Not true for the ADAMTS13, where we started off by looking at the ADAMTS13 itself. I think that's about it for mixing studies. If you have particular questions about the lupus anticoagulant, you're welcome to call, but you can also go to one of our other podcasts on the lupus anticoagulants or to our webinar on the lupus anticoagulants. With that, I'll sign off. This is, again, Brad Lewis with Blood, Sweat, and Smears, the podcast from Machion Diagnostic. 
That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Machion Diagnostics, your reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. Thank you for listening. And if you have a question or comment or there's a topic you'd like Dr. Lewis to speak to, please send us an email to bloodsweatandsmears at machiondiagnostics.com. That's M-A-C-H-A-O-N diagnostics.com. You can follow Machion at Twitter at DX. Be sure to subscribe to stay in the know. Share this podcast with clinicians you think might appreciate it. And we hope you'll join us next time here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears.